Just a little love note to all of our loyal free cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to the show. This is an ad-free podcast. And we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews. and Without the stuff that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at patreon.com forward slash free cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five, and it turns out we're going to start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free cookie supporters. We're going to make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could, I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content. Like I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content, you know? And I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today. And today we're switching it up. We do. We are um, calling an audible, which is a phrase from the sports world. Oh, well, I, educate me! I have no idea what that is. I thought that was a company. Ah, that's right. So we, we were. It's not really an audible because it's not last minute, but an audible is when a quarterback gets up to you know put his put his hands under the center to get the football. You know, hut hut hike, um, and he sees that. The that sounded de- really intimate for a minute. I there. know. I was going to say the line of scrimmage, but I thought that would lead us down a whole other explanation if I said the line of scrimmage. So it's like, you know, you have a play in football and you're like, we're running this play. And then you're like, okay, the play is called blue 42. And then you get up to the line and the quarterback sees that the defense is perfectly aligned to defend the play that he's going to call. And then he's like, no, 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 no. This is his brain wheels churning. And he's like, I'm going to call an audible. We're going to change the play. Hey guys, we're running blue 43 instead of blue 42, blue 43. And then he goes, blue 43, and they change the whole play. And that's an audible. He's Mm. called an audible. Mm. Anyway, so our listeners are super excited about this right now because this is the content they look for from us, (laughs) is arcane details about the game of football. So welcome to Free Cookies. Uh, I'm glossing over. (laughs) But we have today, this is all to say in the sports world, we have a guest we have a guest specific to Kate Fagan who can talk all the sports talks. <laughs> but it turns out I have a lot of questions about running. So talking to the one, the only, Kara Goucher was actually quite interesting. Yeah. So Kara Goucher is a two-time Olympian. She ran in London and Beijing, and she's a graduate of the University of Colorado. I, I knew her from the University of Colorado. She lives in Boulder, and she's, you know, she's raced in world championships, and she actually is, is a huge advocate for clean sport to try to get you know, performance-enhancing drugs and cheating out of running, where it's one of the sports where there's a lot of along with baseball and some other ones that has historically had a lot of performance enhancing drugs. And so she's done a lot of awesome work around clean sport, but I just long distance running has always been really interesting to me, the mentality of it. So we talked to her about all those different kinds of things. And you did that for a little bit in high school, right? Just track, not long distance running. No, I did long distance running. I did cross country, but I did it to hang out with my sister. That's why I did it. Which that's... So impressive. I would never run a long distance just to hang out. I mean, I love you, and I would not take up long distance running. Oh, should we tell the people about Jurassic Park? (laughs) We've already told the people about Jurassic Park. Okay, so if you have been with us for a long time, if you are a new listener, you'll have no idea what we're talking about. But we have this ongoing joke about if I had to create, if we had to create a team to survive on Jurassic Park, how Kate would maybe not be the first person that I would draft. Well, don't to make, be don't act on like I would. Not, like, don't even phrase it like that. That's a euphemism. I wouldn't be your first draft pick. I wouldn't be on your team. That's what you've said. But let's tell them what we talked about yesterday. Okay, what did we talk about yesterday? Where you were again? This had come up, and you were quite upset 
that you weren't going to be on my team for Jurassic Park. And then, you know, we came up with a joke that Kate could be the mixologist. Uh, turns out we watched it again last night and everyone knows the iconic scene where she's eating the jello at the end when the raptors come in. Everyone and you knows you don't that see scene. the raptor, but you just see the jello starts to wiggle. And what was your response to that scene? Was this after I um, belayed onto the balcony? Had taken five edibles. <laughs> was this this after I attached myself to a harness and scaled the house to get up and to secure an overturned plant in a very Jurassic Park like moment where yeah. I ventured Y'all, we into have the wild? Some palm plants on the patio outside of our bedroom, and one tipped over because it was windy, and Kate put it back up again. <laughs> I went out into the wind and the cold and the ice and I got down in the dirt. It was 50 degrees. It was 47 and incredibly windy. Um, Oh, you know what? You know, um, no, we have to complete the joke. You're getting away from your fabulous joke. You're right. I want to give you credit where credit is due because you're not going to be on my team. So I at least want to pay you one compliment. So going back to the jello shaking scene, and this is really banking off the fact that Lindsay Collins, our producer, made this like epic Negroni jello for Thanksgiving. And you can find it on her Instagram on F and B. I put it on my Instagram too. It's just like genius. Everyone should start jiggling with their booze. Um, so the iconic scene in Jurassic Park where she's eating the Jello. We're on a text chain with our friends Joel and Allie, and we're making all the jokes. And <laughs> Kate responded with that GIF. That's actually a Jean Chartreuse jelly shot. Green, made green during- Chartreuse. What did I? Why are you ruining the joke? And no, 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 I, I just want to make sure green Chartreuse. Yeah. What did I say? I thought you said, uh, anyway, it doesn't I'm sorry, matter. am I not enunciating well enough for you? I'm sorry. Kate wrote back, that's actually a green chartreuse jelly shot I made during some downtime between attacks. Did you think that I was being rude there? I think that you totally ruined my joke. It was my joke, though. Oh, my God. It was my joke. Welcome to marriage. Should we bring on Kara? I think we should. <laughs> Kara Goucher is an American long-distance runner. She was the 10,000-meter silver medalist at the 2007 World Championships, and she represented the U.S. at the 2008 Beijing Olympics and in 2012 in London. She made her marathon debut in 2008 and finished third the following year at the Boston Marathon. She is also a Colorado Buffalo, and she lives in Boulder, Colorado. We are now joined by Kara Goucher. Uh, Kara, so excited to have you on the podcast. Just to reminisce to about like the late 90s, early 2000s when we overlapped just a little bit. Yes, yes. Do you even just remember? Barely, you're a baby. It's true. And do you remember, I feel like I've like asked this story of you before, but do you remember when we on the basketball team were about to leave, I think for either the Big 12 tournament or the NCAA tournament. And like you hand delivered a card onto the bus for us. Do you remember this? I I don't remember not that. As, no. not, as, not as big a moment. <laughs> More special for you, Kate. More special for you. But like it, like ever since that happened, and I, I actually remember the card, we passed it. She a, kept it. It's in our bedside table. <laughs> I look at it every night. Um, Normal. <laughs> but in it, you wrote, You. it was very self-effacing because in it, you wrote that like we played basketball and it was like, you know, in, in your mind, like all of these skills had to be blended together. Whereas like you were just a runner. It was kind of the emotion. Like you were so impressed with us because, you know, we were like ranked high and basketball was such a tough sport. And I just thought it was the most charming thing. Like, let's just say the football players were not hand delivering cards to us on the bus. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad I'm, I've always admired other sports. You know, I've played basketball. I've played every sport probably that you can name. And I could never just be free in the moment in any other sport, but running. And so Hmm. I've always just like appreciated the skill level, appreciated the athleticism because I've tried it and I can't do it. So yeah. (laughs) Well, okay. That's interesting that you said that the only sport that you could be free in is running because I, I confess I have tried to run and I know that I tried to run. What a weird thing to say. I, I have gone through little teeny tiny spurts in my life where one of my best friends, Carly Wade was a runner and she got me into it. And actually one of my fondest memories on this like three month spurt when I used to run, not competitively, I just mean outside, uh, was when I was visiting, um, I was in Bruges, actually, I was in Europe and I went on a run and I put on my headphones and I got lost in Bruges on a run. And for the first time in my life, I didn't hate running. I just was so enamored with the experience 
of being outside, my heart beating, not knowing where I was, taking in the beauty. And I truly felt free in that moment. And I'm, I'm so curious because I feel like running, especially at the level that you have run at, is all about metrics and medals. And I'm curious, like, what, what does running mean to you? Well, I just love the way you just described that because that is how I would describe me entering running as a child, like just complete freedom. I didn't have to think about how I was planting my ski pole or the edge of my ice skate. It was just like, I could just push, push, push. And sometimes I'd push too far and my lungs would feel like they were going to explode, but there was something like really powerful in that. And so, you know, I've been running, I've been in organized running for 30 years now, like where I actually run every day and I write down what I did. Um, and, but it's really changed over the years, you know, like obviously when I was at the height of my career and I was trying to win medals and and land on the podium, it was like really, it was my life and it was all measured on like success. But then, you know, that's when I started to actually not love running so much. Mm -hmm. And I always would have to kind of go back to like, what did I love about it in the beginning? What is it that I love about it now? And it is exactly what you said. It's like that freedom for myself, the freedom for my thoughts, the freedom from frustration, and just like the ability to move my body through space. And I mean, I, I just hope I can always do it, you know? Yeah. So so I was looking back through your Instagram over the last couple of days, and I came across a, a post that you put up a little more than two years ago at this point. And, and you, it was where you were doing the podium talks, I believe, or, or connecting with other runners. And then you had to write a letter to yourself that you would then receive like three months later. And mm-hmm. in it, you wrote, sometimes you wonder speaking, you know, to yourself, sometimes you wonder what your purpose is. You are a slowly aging athlete. What good is that? Mm-hmm. And that was two years ago. I'm like, where are you in that, for lack of a better word, like journey now? Yeah, I think that was a time when I was really searching for acceptance of myself. I think when, you know, your value is placed on how high you finish in a race and it's just inevitable at some point that your body's going to change. I mean, it's just like, it's just human nature, right? Like you start to get older and things don't, you just can't recover quite as well. You can't run quite as fast. And I was really struggling during that time with, I had missed my third Olympic team just barely. And I was trying to sort of like force this race to prove to everyone I should be a three-time Olympian, but my body wasn't, it just kept breaking down and I just wasn't treating it well. And I was just in this place where I was like, who am I? Like, what is my value when I can't perform well and I can't, you know, win races and I can't like, I don't know, like, what is my value? So I definitely went through this creative struggle, but I think a couple of years ago, I just started to sort of accept myself for where I am and I just kind of said to myself, okay, I can either like walk away from running forever and just have it be over, like stop torturing myself. Or I can say, okay, reality is that I'm 40 years old. I am not the athlete I used to be, but I still really enjoy running. I still really enjoy training for something. And I enjoy that whole experience of seeing what I can get out of myself. And like, can I do that? and be okay. Like, what is, I just was struggling. Like, can Mm -hmm. I justify still training for something when I know it doesn't lead to like a gold medal Mm -hmm. anymore? Right. You know, like, can I justify leaving my son and my husband for hours on the weekend to go train when it doesn't get us anything? It gets us nothing financially. So anyway, the long, the answer is that I decided that, yeah, you know, like this is my life (laughs) and it still brings me joy. And I don't, I had to sort of stop caring what anyone else might think about the races and the performances I was giving. And just, it still is bringing me happiness. And so I no longer judge myself on my, you know, ability to run fast because I, it's not there anymore. I'm going to probably sound a little fixated right here, but as, (laughs) as a a yoga practitioner in, in yoga, uh, as a teacher, I teach this, and I have always been taught that part of the the asana practice is to put yourself into shapes and positions that bring you um, discomfort, maybe for lack of a better word. And, you know, it's about the impermanence of the moment and the ability to stay calm amongst the fluctuations in your mind, amongst the chaos in your body. And yet, 
Kara, when I try to do something like spinning or running. Um, when I was little, I wanted to be Kobe Jones. I don't know if I wanted to be with him or be him or just merge. Soccer player. A soccer player. And so I played soccer in middle school. And I was that sad little middle schooler who would like, run, 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 kick the ball, run, 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 kick the ball. And then I'd be like, oh, I'm so tired. And I would just <laughs> want to collapse. And you, you talked about just a moment ago in running when, you know, you reach that moment where it feels like your heart's going to explode, which I, I know that feeling, but you said it, it excites you. And for me, I legit worry, like, is my heart going to explode? And I'm just so fascinated to talk to someone of your caliber like when that feeling happens, and especially in the days where you're motivated to get on the podium, like how can you differentiate between like my heart might legitimately explode if I keep this or like, is there, do you get past that feeling? I'm just so fascinated by like, how do you get beyond that? And Kate, you know, she's like on her Peloton for an hour straight, like huffing and puffing and she's super fit. I don't mean like she's out of shape, but just <laughs> if I were to try to maintain the level that she's at, it, it frightens me. And I just wonder if you two are, are you different breeds? Like, am I just bred differently? What is it? Am I a pony and you guys are like show horses? I don't understand. Kara, <laughs> hmm. <No>. dissect. <laughs> right? Definitely you're not a, a pony, but I think like, I doubt Kate could just hop on the Peloton the first day and, and ride at her threshold for an hour. Right. And like, I True. couldn't, when I was younger either. And I mean, if you would have told me when I was 16 that I would run a marathon and maintain the same mile pace that I just ran a mile and, you know, at an all out race, like I wouldn't have believed you, but yeah. it's like over time. And, you know, like, I still like that feeling. Sometimes I run mountains now I'm not good at it, but I like to run it just because I get that feeling in my chest. Like my heart might explode. It just makes me feel alive. But obviously there's like this line, once you cross it, like you're dead and you just ruined everything, you know? <laughs> like, you That's what I fear. You're working for out the window. Like you have to learn how to like ride that line. And when I was younger, I was really, really bad at that. Um, I would like run as hard as I could and get as big of a lead as I could. And then I would like almost walk and just hope that no one would catch me. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, like that's like not the best way to race. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's one of those things that you just build up over time. But also there are people who like are more suited to be like aerobic people like that, you know, mm -hmm. like you're a yoga expert. Like I'm fascinated by that, like staying calm in your mind in slow movement and holding positions and feeling that, you know, like I never have to hold anything. I'm always in motion. Mm -hmm. When you're in, cause you, you just said that, that thing where you're like, I couldn't imagine when you were really young right? and you run a mile and whatever the time is, I'm probably going to make it even higher than it is like five thirty or, you know, even faster. And you couldn't imagine doing that for a whole marathon. Wait, what, what what's the fastest you've run a mile? I want to know. Wait, wait, Kara. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause me is like a seven forty five. <laughs> I love it when I break no, babe, I know. I mean, oh. I'm proud of you, but I, I want to know what Kara runs. <laughs> it's, she's not defined um, by metrics, but please tell us. I'm just curious. <laughs> Um, so at the professional level, you run the 1500. So I ran a 405 in the 1500, which is about a 420 or a 421. Oh my mile. God. That's so fast. And what, what, but that was not my good, that wasn't my event. Like that's not, um, yeah. People like to run a lot faster. The, you should not be impressed is what she's saying by that time. <laughs> yeah. Well, tough. I'm impressed. <laughs> but when you're, when you're in a marathon and you're holding a pace that, you know, it, that if to to the lay person, like I, I've thought about this before, how like you look at a marathoner and I'm like, I can't even run a hundred meter dash in the time that they're holding for a whole marathon. But what, what, what are you actually thinking about then? Is it the same thing that I'm thinking about when I'm on a run? Right? Like, is it, is, is the human experience so, so similar that like, you can't just help but let your mind wander when you're in mm. an actual marathon? Or are you actually the whole time thinking, computing the pace, computing the distance, computing everything constantly. Yeah. So I, I was not ever the fastest woman. So I never really ran a marathon just to see how fast I could run. I, my skill was always like, I could read a race and I could read what other people were doing, how they were feeling. I could read what, what move was real and what move was just trying to scare us. So I was always just trying to be like, 
really blank in my mind, honestly. Like most people, when I say this, like kids now, they don't know what I mean. But remember when we were really little and like the TV just went blank at midnight. Like it just was fuzz. Yes. You guys remember that? I remember that. (laughs) Okay. So like that would be my goal, like alert enough to to notice them move, to notice someone's breathing or if they're laboring, but mostly just kind of fuzz. And then there would be a point in the race where, okay, if I'm still in the lead pack at this point, whether it's 19 miles or whatever we've decided, my coach and I, like at that point, I'm coming into total focus. And I I remember this movie, um, oh my gosh, it's really, it was a color perfect game with Kevin Costner. He was like a pitcher. Yeah. um, Um, For the love of the game. For the love of the game. So yeah. like he's, I'm all like Bull Durham. Can, nope. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So you can like hear everyone cheering and then mm. often it's just focuses in. And that's kind of mm. like what where my mindset, if I was gonna have a good race, my mindset was totally focused in and I was just focusing on myself, but like there a little bit of alertness to know, you know, especially when I race on the track, if someone makes a move, I need to be able to see it coming and and move right away with it. That's so crazy to me. I mean I I, I, obviously when you get deeper into a sport, like that's what happens, the differentiation in, in, the, in the focus level. Or can I jump in? Mm, yeah. Um, so, you know, when, when it, I'm going to see if these things connect and I don't know if they do. So if they don't, then you can just say that that doesn't make sense for, for me and for my life. But there, when I was getting better at writing there, there were pieces of specific advice that mentors gave me and they were like, not only will this keep you like in this case, it was like a dangling modifier. They're like, if you can pinpoint every sentence that has a dangling modifier, not only will you not have dangling modifiers, but you will learn how to read sentences and make each of them stronger. And like, you will just become finely tuned. And then we were talking to this really wonderful chef named Kristen Kish. I asked her this question and she, and I'm like, does that relate to cooking? And she was like, actually it does because I had a mentor who who told me that like anything I make, you have to care about the dish that it goes in. And so she was like, if you make a pasta, you never put it on a plate. You always put it in a bowl, in a bowl of, of a specific shape, shape because you want the experience of who, the person eating the pasta. Like you want it to stay warm. You want the sauces to be in, you know, certain places or whatever a chef would say. I'm wondering if, if that relates to your life and running in terms of like any mentor you ever had who gave you a piece of advice that not only made you stronger in that thing, but like helped you look at the whole game differently. Yeah. I think like the best sort of advice that I got over the years was to really, and it sounds super simple, but it's harder said than done was to really like enjoy the process because if you're super, just always fixated on this goal or this race, you start to lose the love. You start to make choices you probably wouldn't normally make. Um, but if you can really be enjoying the process and be in the moment on every day and every practice, like then when you get to race day, you're just, you are filled with appreciation and you realize that like, no matter what happens on that day, like life is going to continue on. Um, I don't know if that's like answering your question, but that's probably like the biggest advice that helped me in my elite career was really just always centering myself, taking myself back to why I liked running, enjoying the process moving forward. And that typically ended up with, you know, results that were good in races. Yeah. Well, taking a little bit of a, of a right turn here, cause I, we'll, we'll definitely intro this for our listeners before we bring you on. But one thing I'm, that I know you've spoken a lot about and that we're both curious about is when you decided that you were going to become an ambassador for clean sport, which didn't just mean that you were going to be pro clean sport, but you were also going to be honest about the experiences you had at, at Nike and with Alberto Salazar. And that moment, not just that it's a moment, but this time in your life where you understand that you're risking affiliations and you're risking like that whistleblower status. Like what was, what was that time period like for you? You know, when I first went to the authorities almost eight years ago, it was totally quiet and private. I was still a Nike sponsored athlete. I knew that if Nike found out that I went to the United States anti-doping agency, my contract would be over, you know? So it was very quiet in between myself and my husband and them. 
Um, fast forward a couple of years, my husband actually had decided to go public with this big program. And he was like, you obviously can't do it. You're, you're training super hard. Like I'll just speak for us. But like this program was airing, whether we were a part of it or not. Um, and there had been like talks of programs in the past, but this was the first one that was like actually going to happen. And he interviewed for it and they went back to the UK or the UK production and you know, I, it started to eat at me. I was like, maybe this is it. Like, maybe this is my time to finally sort of unburden myself. And so I invited them. I told them if they'd come back, I'd speak on the record. And so anyway, this is all to say that I knew that there would be some backlash and I knew that there would be people who would call me a liar or whatever, but I didn't comprehend the way it would just totally change my life, that it would change um, my family safety at times, that it would change my ability to get into races, that it would change my ability with publications, like my relationships with publications, because, you know, their advertising dollars are coming from Nike. Like I couldn't, I had zero idea that it was going to be like that. And so it wasn't like this super brave choice I made. It was kind of like, I was like, I'm tired of lying. Wouldn't it feel so great to just tell the truth mm -hmm. when I'm interviewed and just sort of release that off of my back and my heart. But I, didn't really think about like, oh, and then I'll be blacklisted. Like it, it never even crossed my mind. When, I don't know if this connection is going to make sense, but when you were, when, when the whole country was paying attention to like the impeachment, whenever it was now, there's so much has happened since, <laughs> since then. And you see the responses to whistleblowers and like the backlash they get. Did you have any like special insight during that time where you were like, actually, I do know what that's like. And I do have, like, I do know what that feels like. Yeah, I mean, I always feel bad for people that speak up because I know what it's like to, you know, your your reputation just takes this crazy hit. And people from your past will say stuff about you that you're like, wait, what? You know, like yeah. people will come out of the woodwork and your family gets really upset because your family knows that your heart's in the right place. And and mm -hmm. and I mean, like, I always feel bad for people. I read that book, Whistleblower, and even though hers was like on a crazy bigger scale, um, it just, I was like, yeah, I get it. I feel it. And so I, the word whistleblower is weird because I, I don't know. I just don't see myself that way, but I definitely was not prepared for the way it would change my family's life, you know, and it, and it still isn't over. Like there was a hearing that I testified at. There was a conclusion finally last year. I mean, a year ago, but now, but now there's an appeal. And so it's just sort of like this thing that we can't really move past as a family, it seems like at times. When you say you can't see yourself that way was as a whistleblower, like what, what image comes into your mind when you think of a whistleblower? When I think of a whistleblower, I think of someone that's just like so brave and they just like hmm. stand in the front lines and they are like, put their foot down or their stake in the ground. They're like, you know, I'm going to make sure, like, I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going to risk everything and you're going to know. I just feel like I am not that brave. <laughs> I didn't realize what I was risking. Mm. You know what I mean? It just feels different. Well, and extending from that, I, I'm very curious to hear about your experience with pregnancy when you were with Nike. And I was reading that Nike wouldn't and correct me if I'm wrong, but that Nike wouldn't let you announce your pregnancy until Mother's Day because they wanted to correlate it with some well, <laughs> monetary announcement, yes. announcement of sorts, I'm assuming. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Nike knew I wanted to get pregnant. They knew I wanted to have a baby. And there is no, at the time anyway, there was no, uh, pregnancy is not written in any female athlete contracts. So, I went to them and I said, what's going to happen? And they said, nothing's going to happen. Just be relevant. And so, I mean, I was like 12 weeks pregnant, standing on the ledge of a cliff, motion, like totally sick, feeling like I was going to puke, like running at sunup for a photo shoot for Shape Magazine for Nike. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I worked my ass off during that time. And yeah, what does be relevant mean? Like no problem. Be pregnant. Just be relevant. What, what, what right. does that mean? I mean, I, I took it that. as anything you're asking me to do, I'll do. Yeah. You know, I think I did between photo shoots and appearances, I did like 20 or 25 plus appearances Jeez. slash photo shoots during that time. That's insane. You know, Nike wanted to announce my pregnancy, which I was fine with. I mean, I knew they'd do a good job, which they did. It was on the front page of the sports section of the New York Times. Um, but like literally, I was not supposed to like post anything 
or tell anybody until it was announced. You know what I mean? And so imagine my surprise when I don't even get notified, but my um, financial advisor is like, oh, your quarterly payment didn't come in. And then it started this whole thing of like, well, you know, like you haven't been racing and, and, and we don't know how long you're going to be suspended. And it became this like really, really stressful time in my life where I'm, you know, trying to come back now from having a baby. I'm not getting paid. I'm, I'm fighting this battle behind the scenes yet. I'm being on the cover of magazines and I'm everywhere as a successful pregnant athlete story. And I felt like I was living in two worlds. I felt like I was living in this public world, which was all happy and women can do anything. And I was living in this private world where I couldn't do everything and I was being punished for trying to do everything. So it was just a really stressful time in my life. And yeah, it sucked actually. It's not fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I think what's been, what was interesting for me, even I did a story with ESPN at this point, almost like six years ago. And it was on Brittany Griner, a women's basketball player who was at the time going to be the number one pick in the WNBA draft. And I'd never really done a story before then trying to understand like Nike sponsorship levels. I, before I just kind of had the average consumer belief that like Nike was amazing on every level. And it's like, if you were sponsored, whether you were like LeBron or any other athlete, like it was fulfilling you financially. I didn't, and so when I was reporting the story on Brittany Griner and I got to understand a little bit deeper about like what kind of money we were talking about for female athletes, like some of the best women's basketball players in the world, like making, you know, 30 grand a year on mm. a Nike deal. <laughs> and it kind of, it really, it really, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised cause I came up in the women's sports world so I can see the disrespect on all the different levels, but I think the understanding level from the average consumer versus like insiders who, who are fighting for sponsorships. Is there a way that you can like quickly summarize kind of like the disparity there between like the outward perception of what the experience is like, and then like the inward fight? Yeah. I mean, it's, there's so much, the the contracts are so extreme on either end, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, myself signed a very small contract out of college, but then ended up having for a runner (laughs) and a female runner, a really big contract my last six years. Um, But like there's people racing and winning Olympic gold medals that have zero salary and just gear and travel. That's all they're being paid for. I mean, that's all they're being given. Yeah. But but they're contracted, right? So they can't go now and sign with someone else or they can't accept money from Adidas or wherever. And I mean, it's just a, it's a problem in the industry. And I mean, one good thing about Nike is that they have really sponsored a lot of track and field athletes, but people think they're making like millions or mm-hmm. even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the majority of them are making about 20 K, right. you know? And so it's just, it does. And you know, you look at their Instagram, you never know, right. They're decked out. They've got the latest shoes. They've got the latest gear. It's great. Um, imagery, but they're struggling. Yeah. yeah. The imagery is selling it, but they're really usually struggling to make ends meet. They're constantly applying for grants or scholarships to continue training as a professional athlete. I know you said earlier that you, you know, you don't think of yourself as brave, but it does seem that from an out, from, from like my perspective, looking that you have taken on an activist role within your sport. And maybe that it sounds like maybe it was kind of happenstance or like things presented themselves along the way. Do you now view yourself as an activist, how would you describe that? Yeah. I mean, like, look, I'm really shy and I'm insecure. <laughs> um, I just am. But when I'm passionate about something or like, I feel like I know running really, really well. I'm not afraid to talk running with anyone. Right. Or I'm not afraid to talk female rights and sports with anyone. Mm-hmm. So it's like when I know things really well and I feel confident in myself that, yeah, I've lived that. I know that then I feel confident entering the conversation. And it's kind of weird how life happens. Like I am really shy, uh, especially when I was younger, especially when I gave you guys that letter in basketball. Um, (laughs) But it's weird how like I just happened to have enough success in sport that as I got older, when I did join the conversation, people listened. Mm -hmm. And so that felt 
scary to me at first, but then it also felt like responsibility and has definitely turned into a feeling of responsibility. I can't tell you how many athletes reach out to me all the time. They don't feel like they can say anything. They don't feel like they can do anything. And I'm sort of behind the scenes, reaching out to USATF, reaching out to sponsors or whatever it is. And so I, I feel like I have to do that. I mean, what if, if you can't speak for whatever reason, people are listening. And if you can't speak for the people who don't have a voice, like what's the point? And speaking a different shade of responsibility, uh, I was reading on your Instagram, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, but you, you said something along the lines of you've got to hurt a little to get to the top. Trust me, it's worth it. And this is through um, the, the work that Kate has done with the story on Madison Holleran and her book. We've discussed a lot of this concept with athletes that it's basically what's presented to you is you either retire or you're a quitter is like you, very like, frequently the attitude. Yeah, like yeah, just to, just to quickly yeah. clarify, like I, I feel like in reporting Maddie's story and talking to so many young athletes, they feel like either they are Tom Brady and at some point you like say goodbye after the Super Bowl and everyone cheers for you and has a par- has a parade or you have to quit. And right. you have to be even if you know, even if you're older and you've become a professional, you still have to quit. Sorry. I just, right. Yeah. yeah. There doesn't seem like there's a lot of shades in between. Yeah. And I'm curious your advice for athletes, you know, how does someone differentiate between um, damaging pain, whether that's mental health pain or physical pain versus dedication to move through a challenge? Yeah, that's a really good point and clarifying point. Like I, it's so true. I think that's why there's so much depression and, uh, you know, once people retire from professional sport across all sports, right? Yeah. Because you feel like you had to quit. Like I gave up on myself, even though the reality is you probably had this like great career and nobody gets to actually go out on top. Like the amount of people that actually get to go out on top, I don't even know what the percent is, but I'm sure it's less than 1% that yeah. actually, you know, hit that home run, walk away. And they're like, right. yep, I'm good. Cause you're always like enticed back in. You're like, well, I mean, shit, I'm still good. You know? Um, so it, it's so difficult. And I saw Adam, my husband who was a professional track athlete go through it. And I've seen so many friends struggle with just depression after their careers end. So there, I, that is something that I hate. And that is why I've liked being really open with my struggles with it mm-hmm. and, and saying, Hey, I still have value now. You know, I can still pack a room when I'm speaking and I can still get people, you know, people line up when I'm at this, whatever race I'm at. And I still have value just because I'm not fast anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have like life experiences that don't fade away. They're still important. There's like no expiration on inspiration. It's not like, Oh, you were good two years ago. Oh, I don't find you inspiring anymore. Ooh, I like Maybe that. the industry will tell you that, but it's not true. I like and that. And so, yeah. And so, but as far as like the youth and, you know, like we, we have this culture where it's like tough all the time, just be tough. Like you're not tough enough, you're out. Right. And that's also a mistake. Like I do believe that you have to hurt and your heart and you have to hurt physically to, to crest through to like new levels, to make yeah. these breakthroughs. True. But I mean, if, if you're having it, like your body is aching day after day after day, like that's time to wake up and pay attention and say like, you know what, actually to be the better athlete, I need to listen to this and take care of this. And if you're feeling more and more isolated and like you don't have no worth and you're struggling, like that's the time to reach out. Like a little pain, yeah, a little pain is what, teaches you how badly you want it and it teaches you how to overcome but pain is real and life pain is real and you it is a tough line to walk but I just think something that's eating at you for days and days and days or something that's aching you for days and days and days you know at that point toughing through it is actually the worst choice Mm -hmm. and the brave choice is to like actually address it yeah one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I've said it to, to Catherine a couple of times, um, have you been following the the fact that Biden, Joe, Joe Biden, I don't feel like I needed his first name. I don't <laughs> I know why say. I did that right there. <laughs> Just to clarify what <laughs> Biden we're talking about. Um, yeah. Okay. Joe is who we're talking about. Um, he said that he plans or wants to cancel student debt in like the first 50 to 100 days of his presidency. Did you see that at all? 
I did see that. Yes. I will somehow relate this I'm to what we're talking about. I'm curious where you're going to go with this. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I've been thinking a lot about, cause there was a, a lot of blowback to that from people saying like, Oh, I see oh, where you're going. Okay. Shh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> like a magic trick um there's so many people responding to that being kind of like hell no like i pulled myself up by my bootstraps and i paid off my student debt how dare you cancel student debt for other people and this struck me very clearly as a form of generational trauma that i see so often in sports as well which is like former athletes who become coaches who were forced to do let's say very granularly workouts that were actually not that safe, not that great. I mean, like uh, you, I can remember ones at Colorado where it's like you had to like forward roll the length of the football field, like just to see if you don't vomit, you know? And it's like one generation after another, coaches force the next generation to do that because they themselves were forced to do it. And so I'm, I'm relating that because I'm, I'm wondering if like even in the, even in the running world, I feel like that must exist at some level. Like you must come across coaches who they don't really have your best interest at heart. They want to like take out their own trauma and inflict it on the next generation. Like does, does that resonate with like even the running world as well? Cause I definitely saw it in the basketball and football worlds. Oh, definitely. And I mean, let's just be real. Like most professional male coaches are male, white, And they have this like, well, back in the day, we ran 200 miles a week and Mm -hmm. we didn't eat dinner. And that's what we did. (laughs) And you guys are just so privileged, like in your nice clothes and your fancy food, organic, like we didn't have organic, you know? Right. right. And, and they're, they're like wanting you always to do more and wanting you always to weigh less. And yeah, that definitely still happens. And I, that's, it's dangerous. Like the people who have yeah, you know what? That does breed some success, but it's usually so short term. Mm-hmm. And the people who have adapted and said, like, hey, I know I did that, but remember how my career only lasted a year and a half and then I was tired all the time and I kept getting injured? Like, huh, I wonder if those two things are related, mm-hmm. you know? And they've actually been able to change and say, okay, yeah, you have to work hard. But the body also has to recover mm-hmm. and mentally you have to have some happiness and joy because what else, otherwise, what are you doing? You're yeah. just suffering and pushing your body for like, for what? Like you're just leading people down this terrible path. So yeah, I think that happens in the running industry a lot. I do feel like, especially over the last year, when Mary Kane spoke out, people are talking about this more and more and people are becoming more and more open with it. Um, but I do think unfortunately, it's sort of ingrained in the culture and it's going to take a while before we completely remove ourselves from that. Yeah. It's so funny because I, I feel like in the, in the sports world, and I think it's probably gotten better. Um, but even when I was at ESPN, I would talk to professional athletes and especially in like team sports, they were so thrilled to get to the professional level where the coaches actually listen to science versus Mm. the college level where (laughs) people kind of got trapped into believing that you didn't need time off, that every sprint you ran made you better versus like, it's like sometimes not running sprints is actually going to make you better. And there, it's like this weird thing in sports where it's like people say we want to believe in science when it comes to climate change, but a lot of coaches don't necessarily believe in the science of like recovery and rest. Right. Um, I feel like one of the most dangerous coaches is a coach that like almost made it in their sport, but didn't quite make mm-hmm. it. And they have this whole narrative of like, oh, if I had just done a little bit more. Yep. That's- and so they refuse to listen to the science. They refuse to listen to like the latest research. And they're like, no, you know, you just got to do a little bit more. If I had just done a little bit more. And like, those are the types of coaches that make me the most nervous. Like, I'm like, you almost made it, but you didn't. And so you're like convinced, you know, and then they're just, they tend to be just drill sergeants. Yep. Uh, I'm going to open up a, 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 a whole category of conversation that we probably need an hour for, but I want to, I want to, <laughs> I'm going to frame it in one question. We'll see. Um, I think like, I think all of us, anyone who's alive at times has like perceived injustices where you're like, life's not fair, but you can't necessarily black and white point to it it's sort of just a feeling that you had this one experience or at a job and you're like, that wasn't fair. I wasn't treated fairly. And yet in your world, you have actual black and white examples where you have, you know, finished with a bronze medal at a huge meet 
And then, you know, you've, you've written about this. And then 10 years later, they're like, um, yep, actually one of the women who beat you was doping. And now you have a silver medal. What does it what does it feel like when you can just feel and you know that injustice so black and white and yet you have to live with it? Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to speak on other sports, but in running, it is a very dirty sport. And, you know, like I grew up in northern Minnesota, like playing in the woods, playing in the water, eating spam goulash hot dish like everything was just so innocent you know what I mean like I had Mm. no idea that someone would cheat to run faster or so I still try to take myself back to that innocence a lot and especially as a professional I would try to take myself back to that innocence because the the reality is that I would line up in a marathon and specifically I can think of a race where Shalane Flanagan and I was probably our greatest marathoner of all time from the U.S. Mm -hmm. she and I were training together for a couple years And we knew this woman in our race was doping. We just knew it. And we knew that she would potentially change the outcome of how the race was run. And we're training for this race and we're, we're changing our training. We're changing our race strategy based on this one person who we know is cheating. And it's so frustrating, right? Like you're like, my best way to run a marathon is X, but she's in the race. So now I have to run it as Y that gives Mm -hmm. me my best chance to, to stay with her. And, you know, she ended up getting busted like two years later and she got a four year ban, but it had already affected all these races that we were in with her. And I can think of a few athletes like that, that, you know, ended up getting caught and it's really hard. It's like this weird compartmentalization in your mind where you have days where you like run and you talk about it and you just are crazy. You're like, we know they're doping. We hate them. They're ruining the sport. But then you have days where you're like, we're going to work hard today. We can't let that enter our mind. Today's about us. Today is about us getting better as athletes. And honestly, when you get to that starting line, you just have to let it go. Like you just have to let it go. Like you can't be thinking about it while you're racing them because you're just seeding to them automatically. It's really hard. It's like this weird, you're living in a few different worlds. Like I'm on the race line and I'm back in Minnesota and everyone's nice and everyone's friendly and everyone would never cheat, you know? And they're all eating goulash. And they're just eating goulash. It's so good. It's just overcooked pasta. Yay. The pasta falls apart before you even put it oh, in your mouth. It's, it's so, so good. delicious. Well, I, I'm glad wait, you wait, said. Wait. Oh. I, I want to fit. I want to. I, I interrupted with the goulash, but I do want to know the compartmentalization. Of goulash? No, no. <laughs> when you're on the racing line and everybody's nice and it's fine. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I can't worry about what they're in, like how evil they are right now. Right. Yeah. Like I have to focus on the fact that I have done everything that was humanly possible for me to be ready right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to focus on that and how I prepared myself. And even if they make a move, I can't go, Oh, that fucking cheater. Right. (laughs) I have to go, Oh, a move has been made. Am I going to go with it or not? You know, I have to eliminate all of that stuff because otherwise you're just, you're lined up and you're like, I know I can't beat her. I know I can't beat her. I know I can't beat her. And like, what's the point then? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, clearly the intended takeaway is that innocence is associated with goulash and spam. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Super innocent. And I feel like anybody who grew up in like the 80s and 90s feels that way. I mean, that's a, that's a new one for me. And it's, it's really expanded my horizon. I'm not going to lie. It's starter jackets and goulash. Oh, that's where it's starter at. Starter jackets. That's where it's at. And umbros. That is. Yes. <laughs> Which I think you can now get at Urban Outfitters again you and can. it's trendy. I'm sure at some point we could have a picture of Kara Goucher training in umbros back in like the early 90s. You know what? I miss that. Because yes. I grew up playing soccer. I played soccer even, don't tell Mark Wetmore, my college coach, even in the summer before even in the summer between college years. And so I grew up, guess what I grew up running in? Umbros. Umbros! It was like fine. It was like you wear cotton tee and umbros. Yep. And it's just like, that was a uniform of choice. Mm -hmm. Well, Kara, I feel like you've really evoked one of the more unique ending questions out of me for for this episode of Free Cookies. (laughs) Normally we would just ask you what your favorite cookie is, but now I want to know what cookie evokes either innocence and or childhood for you. Oh, definitely chocolate chip. You know, like just that simple, but like totally Like Toll House? Like, yeah, it's like totally reliable and trustworthy. You know it's going to be delicious. 
Definitely not and doping. You know a chocolate chip cookie is not yeah, doping. Yeah, there's no surprise doping in there. You're not going to find like a random raisin or macadamia nut. Like it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's just good, <laughs> faithful chocolate chip. Kate, Kate just crossed her arms very... I do like oatmeal raisin, but I can understand if you love chocolate chip that you don't want a rogue raisin. I also don't want a rogue raisin in my chocolate chip. That, you know? that would Look, be I know bullshit. You, I know you like oatmeal raisin because I've listened to this. And I know that you, on the very beginning, like made a strict list of what was like yes. this. Oh, you, you are an OG fan if you know the original list. That's great. Yeah. But I'm just, and I'm, I'm like not a cookie hater. Like I'm open to any and all cookies. But if you're asking me right now, like what, if you could have anything that would just make you happy right now, just be like a traditional chocolate chip cookie. Respect okay. with no rogue raisins. And even if we no. opened it up past just nostalgia and childhood oh, wow. to like right now, what cookie you would want? Still chocolate chip? So, yeah, probably still chocolate chip. I do like a good oatmeal <laughs> chocolate chip. Okay. Okay. Let's meet halfway, Kara. That was so halfway. diplomatic. Well done. Well done. <laughs> uh, well, you're the best, Kara. Thank you so much for taking the time I to know. Um, Thanks for talking with us. To join us from your closet. Oh, which is it was great. Also <laughs> meeting us halfway. To you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye, Kara. Bye. And that is a wrap. And as much as I would love to say after that interview that I would go on a run right now, I think I'm going to stick with uh, steps that move rapidly. And eating without food? Without leaving the ground quickly. And eating food. Food eating? While taking my quick steps? No, no, no. Separately. Just as I was trying to think of like the antithesis of us going for like a, like a 5K right now would be eating a bowl of cereal or something like that. Well, it's because you eat turns cereal. Turns out I did just eat a bowl of cereal. Yeah, and that might be so why. So that would be boring if I just ate another one. But I think of cereal as something like you kind of do leisurely. You eat a bowl of cereal. You know, it's just like you kind of walk around. You're like, mm-hmm. see, I think I I ate my bowl of cereal like a sprinter and not like a long distance runner because I was really hungry. Well, when I was a kid, I would eat cereal incredibly rapidly. But now I think of it as something to savor. Back then, it was just like, the f- you know, you'd have your head really deep in the bowl. The constant circular motion and of it the was hand like, yeah, the spoon. It was, and I always went for two or three bowls of cereal, you know, because oh, the way that- I would eat the bowl of cereal is that I would eat all the cereal out of the milk, and then I wouldn't drink the milk. I would pour more cereal in until I got to the bottom and there was no more milk left because I don't drink the cereal milk because that's disgusting, as we've talked about before. So anyway, I think now that I do, I eat cereal more in a more relaxed manner than I used to, which is why it's the opposite of going for a really fast run. You see that now? You see that? Yeah. I didn't really expect us to go here at the end of our, our, our podcast well, is produced by Lindsay B., Lindsay B of F&B Radio. Lindsay, Lindsay Collins of F&B Radio. Do you want me, I can take over telling the people where to go if you want to go find some ra- reviews and some ratings for us. Oh, I don't need to do that. I already did Yeah, but that you're going to you're gonna think up I already ones. ate the cereal. I already looked up the reviews and it turns out both of them are empty. <laughs> <laughs> the bowl is empty and so are the reviews. But you can email us at freecookiespodcast at gmail.com, which is also where you can follow us on Instagram, freecookiespodcast. And you have to, have to, have to follow the Inky Phoenix, which is Catherine's book club because the pick for December, mwah, mwah, And if you don't want mwah. us to talk about cereal milk mwah. at the end of the show, then you can go onto Apple Podcasts and you can rate and review us so that we can talk about your fabulous names that you come up with instead of cereal milk. Well, some people could have thought that was interesting. <laughs> I just want people to rate and review the show. Me too. Is that everything? I think so. Okay. Bye.